Greetings. Thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio today. And I am your host, J.S. Lowther, and this is Sola Scriptura, promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life, all to the glory of God and praise to his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Let me give you a quick word about our sponsors. CR 101 Radio Network is a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. Please take a look at the website, cr101radio.com, for more information there and other podcasts that are available. Also, consider taking a look at gcsapprenticeship.com, which is the website home of GCS Apprenticeship Program, a training program dedicated to the next generation of Christian teachers so they can be equipped to get involved with the inspirational task and honor of being a Christian teacher, even owning and operating their very own Christian school. See again, gcsapprenticeship.com. So last episode, I had uh, given a message that I had delivered to a church gathering uh, several years ago um, that is as relevant for today as it was when I talked about it, probably more so. And um, this time around on my two-week schedule, I am also not going to offer a fresh episode. I'm just doing this introduction so that um, I can kind of update everybody who listens on what's going on here. Well, I'm a busy guy. I uh, do a lot of things other than make podcasts. Uh, I'm involved in in ministry work. I'm involved uh, with my family. I'm involved in, uh, obviously, working for a living also. And so um, there are times where, especially in the fall, uh, it seems like, it's just so hectic to get everything done, especially with our keeping of uh, this fall revival season, also known biblically as the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, it's just been really busy, and it's going to be that way uh, for a little bit yet. And so what I'm going to do today with this podcast is I am going to uh, introduce everyone listening to a late, great friend of mine and a teacher, um, someone that I consider myself a disciple of in many ways, particularly in um, the way in which we look at the Bible and consider it from a realistic perspective uh, and in applications of Reconstruction, uh, Bruce G. McCarthy. 
And Bruce considered himself a monetary realist, and he was much more than that. He was a Bible teacher and a constitutional law teacher. Um, you know, he did quite a bit in his his life, way more than I was able to accomplish uh, in my life from the time he got into the ministry in his early 30s uh, to uh, the age I'm at right now at 39. And so I don't know how the man did it, but he did. And uh, he, he made it a point to make the ideals of biblical money um, a basis for sharing the gospel and, and talking about the law of God. And so um, back in the days that Bruce was deeply involved in this and, and hundreds and thousands of people were involved in this very idea, R.J. Rushdoony. Uh, of course, was one of those who was also preaching on the same ideals of biblical economics as well as uh, some of the other men of, of, of that day. Uh, I think it was Professor Stuart Crane would have been another one um, from even before that time. There were just so many people at that time trying to share this information and to make people aware of the direction America was going. And uh, so much of these men's wise words fell on deaf ears that could not hear it and perhaps loved the system they were involved in so much that they were unwilling to to press into um, the kingdom's money. And so I would like to take this particular episode to introduce you to Bruce G. McCarthy, who uh, passed away in 2016. He uh, was very much the the elder teacher at the uh, church I am part of, and um, I looked up to him greatly, and uh, still do uh, look up to him, and um, hope that uh, even in some small way I can carry on the legacy that he had left for so many people uh, with his life's work. So, with no more further ado, I am going to... Uh, turn over this podcast to Bruce G. McCarthy and introduce you to the message of monetary realism if you are not um, aware of it already. It's often been stated that the lifeblood of an economy is the money. Money is such an important subject that the Bible refers to it frequently. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6.10, we read in part, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And we notice in that passage that money itself is not the root of all evil, but rather the love of money. We, of course, in America no longer have any money in circulation. What we now have are receipts for money. And now it may be that the love of receipts for money is the root of all evil. Jesus, speaking in Matthew 6.24, told us that we could not serve two masters, for we would love the one and hate the other, cling to one and despise the other, but we could not serve God and mammon, which is the God of wealth, riches, or money. And we noticed that he did not say Lucifer, Satan, or the devil. In fact, King Solomon, who is considered to be the wisest man who ever lived, tells us in Ecclesiastes 10.19 that a feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. 
Congressman Ron Paul, speaking before the House March 31, 1982, put our economic plight in the United States this way, quote, During 1971, business and personal failures and bankruptcies totaled 201,352. During 1981, just 10 years later, that figure reached 519,063. During the first two months of 1982, that rate has accelerated by 50%. Money is such a convoluted subject, I guess you might say, that even defining the word money itself seems to be too much for even the experts to handle. I have here an article that appeared in the St. Louis Globe Democrat in the business section, section C, Tuesday, June 1, 1982. It's authored by none other than Louis Rukeyser, and it's entitled, Just What is Money? Does Anyone Know? Dateline, New York, and it says here, quote, Some of the nation's leading experts on money have begun very quietly to make what many would regard as an astonishing admission. They don't know what they're talking about. In this case, as it happens, they mean it literally. They don't know what money is in 1982. Take George W. McKinney, Jr., a highly respected economist who is retiring next month from New York's Irving Trust Company. Now, this is no small bank, and this is no spring chicken that's working at this bank. In fact, this gentleman would have retired in June, or rather July, of 1982. Rukeyser puts to McKinney this question, quote, Is it then that we just don't know what money is these days? And here's the answer from an expert. Quote, Never did know. Never did know, confessed McKinney. And then while listeners to our conversation chuckled nervously, made clear... He wasn't kidding. Now, folks, what would the chance be that we could write a letter to Standard Oil Company and ask their chief chemist for the definition of gasoline? And that he would write back to us and say, we don't know, and we never did. Or maybe we could write a letter to McDonald's Corporation and ask for a definition for Hamburg. And they write back to us and say, we don't know. And we never did. Come to think of it, I'd believe it. The Federal Reserve shares in this ignominious plight, as revealed in a publication put out by the Federal Reserve Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. The Federal Reserve System, Purposes and Functions. And on page 10, they tell us, quote, For one thing, it is not clear how best to define money. This is the monetary authority of the United States. They go on, quote, Economists have not been able to agree on the best definition of money. Those are the experts. Or perhaps we could turn to a college-level economics textbook. I have here, Readings in Money, National Income and Stabilization Policy. The word policy shows up many times, doesn't it, when we're dealing with uh, financial economic matters. Uh, we hear an awful lot of talk about fiscal policy, economic policy, domestic policy, bank policy, Federal Reserve policy, tight money policy. The word policy is derived from another word, policy. 
In fact, this is where we get our word police, which would be to control, to manage, or to manipulate. The word policy is used in this book no less than 2,177 times. But we have an article in this book on page 157, and it's authored by James Tobin, who at the time was Sterling Professor of Economics at Yale University. The article is entitled, Commercial Banks as Creators of Money. And he says here, quote, For example, an eminent monetary economist, more candid than many of his colleagues, admits that we don't really know what money is but proceeds to argue that whatever it is, its supply should grow regularly at a rate of the order of 3 to 4% per year. What do you do for a living, sir? I'm an economist. What is money? I don't know, but whatever it is, its rate of growth should be 3 or 4% a year. There's a man who knows the subject. On page 117 of this same book, we have another article which was written by Paul Samuelson and Robert M. Solo. Both of these gentlemen at the time were professors of economics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Listen to these deep words of wisdom here, for example, on page 117. Quote, If there is anything in this line of thought, it may be that one of the important causes of inflation is inflation. Very good. Or on page 118, we have this other deep revelation. Quote, we leave it as an open question. It may be that creeping inflation leads only to creeping inflation. Rightly did Jesus say that when the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. And if perhaps you never got very much out of economics when you studied it in school, or if you just weren't interested, it may be that you are under the influence of blind guides. In order for us to understand any subject, it is incumbent upon us to understand the words that are native or are indigenous to that particular subject. Words, in fact, are so important that the Committee on the Judiciary of the United States Senate caused to be published a pamphlet entitled Wordsmanship. They gave it a subtitle, Semantics as a Communist Weapon. Now, most of us tend to think of the hardware of the Soviet Union, the MiG-25s, the Bear, Bison, different types of aircraft, Soman or Yellow Rain nerve gas that was used in Afghanistan, maybe the AK-47. We tend to think of the hardware as being the weapons of communist subversion. But that's not what the Senate says here at all. Semantics is a weapon. On page one, we quote a Stephen T. Posny, who was director of international studies at Hoover Institution in Stanford, California. And he tells us in this first page that, quote, this natural confusion of language invites artificial manipulation. It invites it? Hmm. A medieval French king said, quote, he who can't dissimulate can't rule. Now, the word dissimulate means to conceal by pretense. In other words, if you can't look at your constituent with a straight face while you're robbing him blind, you'll never make it in the king business. Of course, now, we're very fortunate, aren't we, in the United States that our politicians would never do that to us. 
Hence, language, it says here, is not only a tool to communicate, it also can be used or abused as a weapon to mislead, to create wrong impressions, and to induce false thinking. You see, word control is mind control. And mind control is people control. And people control is totalitarian rule. Money, our subject today, fits into this scheme. In fact, it is the main building block to totalitarian rule in the modern world. We have here the 1980 annual report for the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia. The article, in fact, the entire book is dedicated to none other than John Maynard Keynes. Keynes on inflation. Page six of this particular publication finds the Federal Reserve quoting John Maynard Keynes, who had written in Economic Consequences of the Peace in 1919, quoting another man by the name of Ulyanov. Now, we know Ulyanov by another name, Lenin. And it says here that Lenin is said to have declared that the best way to destroy the capitalist system was to debauch the currency. Nothing there said we were going to invade the country. All we had to do was to debauch the currency. We'll get back to Keynes later. President James Garfield, before he was assassinated, declared that whoever controls the volume of money in the country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. And if you're going to have an absolute master, then you would probably have to have the correlative, which would be absolute slaves. We're going to discover during this presentation who the absolute master is of the American economy, if not in personal name, at least in their corporate name. If we're going to talk about money, the least we could do is define the word money itself, since the Federal Reserve and Louis Rukeyser and even George W. McKinney seem to fail in this responsibility. Money was defined by Ludwig von Mises, an economist from Austria, as being, quote, the most vendable commodity. Now, it should be pointed out post-haste that there is no vendable commodity being used as money in the United States of America expressed in dollars and cents. Supposing we were to pass a ballpoint pen that I have here to a gentleman in exchange maybe for a necktie, and he agreed or assented to the parity, the exchange ratio, and we passed these two items in this exchange, most people would agree that we have just bothered. Now, if that gentleman decided he didn't want to keep the pen and he'd like to pass it on again, he may trade the pen uh, perhaps for a wristwatch. Now, the pen in this particular instance was used in two or more transactions. It was used as the intermediate substance of two or more transactions. The pen was used as the medium of exchange, or in this particular case, the most vendable commodity. The pen was used as money. Now, we should be quick to point out that there is no such thing in and of itself that is money. 
Money is an abstract term. You could use something as money, but there is no such thing in and of itself that is, quote, a money. For example, there's no such thing as a furniture. If I asked anyone in the listening audience to deliver me a furniture tomorrow morning, what might I receive? Well, from one I might receive a table, another a lamp, from yet another I might receive a bed. All of these items can be used as furniture, but none of them are in and of themselves a furniture. Well, what various commodities have been used historically as money? Well, cowrie shells, seashells have been used as money, fish hooks. In fact, opium was used as money in China, or Mongolia even used bricks of tea. Cows were even used as money at one time. Now, one of the most difficult aspects of using a cow as money is that it's rather tough to make change for a cow. If, for example, you had four goats and I had one cow, and I said I would like to trade, and you agreed again to the parity or the exchange rate, and you agreed that four goats was the equivalent to one cow in value, but you only wanted to part with two of those goats. Well, if four goats equals one cow, ergo pantahoc, therefore, two goats must equal half a cow. As you approach my bossy cow with your giant meat saw, I ask you, what are you going to do with that? Well, you say, I'm going to make change. Hmm. You see a problem emerging. What do we do with the change? Salt was at one time used as money. In fact, if you receive a salary at work, the word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which meant salt. You see, Roman soldiers back about the time of Christ were paid in salt, a very valuable and vendable commodity. If you were not worth your wage, you were not worth your salt. And we have that expression today. Sometimes we simply say the person is not worth his salt. Tobacco was even used as money. In fact, it was used as money in colonial Virginia, which isn't too far away and not too far back in time. Well, what do you mean? People walked around the countryside with tobacco leaves sticking out of their pockets? No. The tobacco was grown and then deposited in a tobacco bank, a warehouse. You received a tobacco receipt, a warehouse receipt, and in the modern-day parlance, it might be called a certificate of deposit, or shortened to CD. You would take the CD downtown, and you'd find a merchant who might be selling a pair of shoes. I'm asking the gentleman, how much do you want for the shoes? And he says, well, I'd like to have 50 pounds of tobacco of a particular grade. Obviously, you didn't walk around town with 50-pound bales of tobacco. You merely handed him a receipt that told him that he could go to the warehouse and pick up the 50 pounds of tobacco, which he may or may not do. He may simply pass the receipt on to someone else, using the receipt not as money, but using the receipt as if it was money. The receipt is now being used as a proxy token or a surrogate, a substitute, if you will, for that which is being used as money. What was being used as money? Tobacco. Silver has been used as money. 
But nothing has been used as money probably quite so long historically as gold. Now, if you're going to use something as money, then that whatever it is, something, must be a tangible. Now, a tangible is perceptible by one or more of the five human senses. You can see it, smell it, taste it, hear it, and or touch it. But we're not using a tangible as money in the United States today expressed in dollars and cents. There is absolutely nothing, no thing, that can be seen, smelled, tasted, heard, or touched as money expressed in dollars and cents in the United States today. A tangible exists in one form or another. In fact, it may even be capable of passing from one form to another. It either exists as a gas, a liquid, or a solid. But again, there is no gas, no liquid, and no solid being used as money in the United States expressed in dollars. Now, in a country such as ours, where we pass maybe 150,000 to 200,000 statutes a year, land of the free and home of the brave, permits and licenses required, you'd think that we would have written a statute somewhere or a law that would identify what we would use as money, at least for public purposes. You see, you and I could use anything we wanted to. We could pass pieces of paper. We could pass uh, tobacco butts, little pieces of metal, fish hooks, most anything. But for public purposes, law was written that would bind them as to what substance they would use at all levels, city, state, county, federal, what they would use as money expressed in dollars and cents. We go to the supreme secular law of the land, which would be the United States Constitution, which tells us in Article 1, Section 10, and Paragraph 1, that no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. We find confirmation in this in the first Mint Act, the Coinage Act of April 2nd, 1792, which, by the way, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston's publication, Liberty and the American Eagle, page 2, is still the law of the land. The Coinage Act of 1792 is still the law. The Coinage Act told us in Section 11 that gold and silver would be as money. And in Section 16, it told us that gold and silver in coin form would be used for payments of debts, for all payments of debts whatsoever. Even the Bible deals with gold and silver. In fact, in Exodus 25 and verse 3, we read where the offering that was made in the tabernacle was to be made in three substances, gold, silver, and brass or bronze, depending on which translation of the Bible you use. Either way, it would be predominantly copper. And that, coincidentally, was the monetary system of the United States up until 1933, gold, silver, and copper. Now, if you're going to use something as money, then you must have a means of expressing it. You'd have to know how much of it you had and how much of it you were going to pay out or receive. If, for example, we were going to use concrete as money, a very bulky substance indeed, but nevertheless, I suppose it could be done, how would we express it? Probably in cubic yards. If we were going to use lumber as money, how would we express lumber? Probably in board feet. If we use gasoline as money, how would we express it? We'd express it probably in gallons. 
If we use money as money, how would we express it? Well, we've hit upon a dilemma. There's no such thing as money. So therefore, there's no way of expressing money. You'd have to find out what you're going to use as money. What was to be used as money at, at law? Gold and silver in coin form. Okay. If you want to use gold and silver as money, how are we going to express it? Dollars and cents. How do we know? Well, if you go to Section 20 of the Coinage Act, April 2nd, 1792, not rescinded, where it tells us that, quote, the money of account of the United States, and what was the money of account? Gold and silver, in coin form, shall be expressed in dollars or units. And then it went into the lesser units, dimes, tenths, cents, hundreds, mills, thousands. This was verified in the United States Code at Title 31 of the United States Code at Section 371, which read verbatim Section 20 of the Coinage Act of April 2nd, 1792. Now, Title 31 U.S.C. 371 has recently been rewritten and is now 31 U.S.C. 5101. It seems like the people down there in Malfunction Junction, that's Washington, D.C., have received quite a bit of heat recently from people in the freedom movement concerning money of account. So they had to start covering their tracks and starting to rewrite the statutes in an attempt to do this. 31 U.S.C. 5101 now says simply, the money of the United States shall be expressed in dollars. Very good. What is the money that the United States government is spending or collecting, or even wasting, that is expressed in dollars and cents. Well, that was the statutory approach. Why don't we take a historical approach to the unit of the money? I have here a publication entitled U.S. Currency, published by the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, again in Washington, D.C., or Malfunction Junction, if you prefer. And on page two, they tell us, quote, the United States became the first of the present community of nations to adopt the decimal system for its currency. How many parts to the decimal whole? 100%. How many cents to the dollar? 100 cents. There's the decimal system of monetary measure. The choice of the dollar as the principal unit of United States currency was largely through the influence of two men. And those two men, they tell us here, were Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. Now, if you look up in a dictionary the term dollar, it will tell you that a dollar is, quote, the monetary unit of the United States. Can a monetary unit become the money for which it is the unit? In other words, if we expressed concrete in cubic yards, could we replace the concrete with cubic yards and therefore have ourselves cubic yards of cubic yards. I wrote to a bank president back in my home state of Maine a few years ago and I said I have a little bit of confusion and perhaps you can resolve it for me. People tell me that the money of the United States is the dollar. Then people tell me that the unit of the money is the dollar. Can a unit of the money become the money for which it is the unit? In other words, would your bank be willing to finance the construction of a shopping plaza built out of cubic yards of cubic yards? 
he wrote back to me and said that I was playing with semantics. But before mentioning the word semantics, he said, quote, in my opinion, the dollar is both the money and the measure of it. Well, he's in agreement with an economist who wrote to me from the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, Virginia, who said that we have dollars of dollars. Can you imagine going into a butcher shop and telling the butcher, I'd like to have three pounds, please, and would you slice it real thin because it improves the flavor? He said, three pounds of what? Well, three pounds of pounds, of course. Or maybe we go down to the food store and we tell the attendant we'd like to have uh, three quarts. And make it snappy. We're in a hurry. He says, three quarts of what? Well, I'd like to have three quarts of quart. Or we go down to the banker and we tell the banker we'd like to have ten dollars of dollars. On page three of U.S. Currency, we have here, quote, the expediency of attending to the size of the money unit, Jefferson added, will be evident to anyone who will consider how inconvenient it would be to a manufacturer or merchant if instead of the yard for measuring cloth, either the inch or the mile had been made the unit of measure. Well, what is the dollar being equated with here in this illustration by Thomas Jefferson? Obviously, the dollar is being equated with inches, miles, and yards. Are those tangibles? Can you see, smell, taste, hear, or touch an inch, a yard, or a mile? If we had a box full of inches, could anybody describe them? If we had a handful of miles, could anybody describe those? Units of measure are not tangible. In the United States, we have three systems of weight measurement. That's if we don't count metric. I have a little prejudice, I guess. Most of us are familiar with the avoirdupois system. The word avoirdupois comes from the French, which means to have weight. There are 16 ounces to the avoirdupois pound, or 7,000 grains to the avoirdupois pound. If, however, we deal in Precious commodities such as gold or silver in shavings, bullion, bar, or dust form, then we use a second system of weight measurement called the Troy system. There are 12 ounces to the Troy pound, or 5,760 grains, if you prefer using grains. If we put that gold and silver into coin form to be used as money, under the decimal system of monetary measure in the United States, we now have a third system of weight measurement, dollars and cents. Let us back up and recap if we can. Money? Well, money is an abstract term. There's no such thing as money, but you could use something as money. What was to be used as money at law? Gold and silver in coin form. What was the monetary unit of measure? So we knew how much of this money we got. Dollars and cents. Here, for example, we look at the poster we have here. We see a $1 bill and a $100 bill. Now, we can now apply the common sense approach. Most people would tell us that a dollar was a piece of paper. 
Some people might even suggest that a dollar was a piece of metal. Is that so? If a tuna was a fish, wouldn't 100 tuna have to be 100 fish? If a lime was a fruit, wouldn't 100 limes have to be 100 pieces of fruit? If a Ford was an automobile, wouldn't 100 Fords have to be 100 automobiles? If a dollar was a piece of paper, wouldn't $100 have to be 100 pieces of paper? I met a man in the Bahamas, oh, it must have been three years ago now, a retired businessman, and he had a $50 bill in his hand. And I couldn't wait to unload some new information on him. And I said, you know, that's not $50. He said, everybody knows that's $50. And I said, well, I just said it wasn't, so obviously not everybody knows that. So I said to him, if a tuna was a fish, wouldn't 50 tuna have to be 50 fish? He said, quote, not necessarily. Why did he give such a ludicrous response? Because he could anticipate the second question, and he was not going to allow me to make a fool out of him on the second question, so he decided to beat me to it and headed me off at the pass and made a fool of himself on the first question. You see, we liken these unto deeds, and that's basically what a note is. A note was nothing more than a claim check or a promise to pay, pretty much like a deed is to land. This is a deed or a claim check or a note or a certificate, either way, to a $1 quantity of money. Now, the $1 quantity of money is not here, it's someplace else. The bottom note is a $100 claim check. This is a claim check to a $100 quantity of the money, and it certainly isn't here, it's someplace else. Now, if you believe it's here, then you're going to have to exert quite a bit of faith because this piece of paper is no bigger and no heavier than the $1 bill above it. In fact, if I were to ask two people in the listening audience to come forward and bring their deeds to their parcels of land, and let's suppose one of you had one acre of land and another one of you had a hundred acres of land. You put your deeds down in front of me and I examine them and I say, aha! They're both exactly the same size, eight and a half by eleven. One is simply denominated as one acre and another deed is simply denominated as one hundred acres. But the deeds are exactly the same size. Why? Simple. The deed is not the land, and therefore the deed does not have to be any bigger if it's denominated as 100, 1,000, 1 million, or a trillion. Now, the Bible told us, if we were to take the scriptural approach now, in Numbers chapter 7, and we have numerous instances throughout the Bible, where the shekel, for example, was a unit of weight not only for money, but also for spears and for shields and other various solid objects. But in Numbers chapter 7 and verse 13, for example, excuse me, it says, quote, And his offering was one silver charger. What was the offering? What was the substance? The substance was silver. What was the shape of the offering? It was in the form of a charger. A New American Standard would say that that was a plate or a silver plate. The weight thereof was an hundred and thirty shekels. Do you ever remember being told, maybe even in a dictionary or maybe even in the 
inside of a children's Bible. They might even have a picture of a coin, and they would declare that that was a shekel. Was it? Or did that coin weigh a shekel? Could they have a picture of a silver object, a disc, and say that this is an ounce or this is a pound? Of course not. No one has ever seen an ounce, a pound, or a shekel, or a dollar. In verse 14 it said, for example, one spoon of ten shekels of gold. What was the object? It was gold. What was the shape? A spoon. How much did it weigh? Ten shekels. No such thing as a shekel. In fact, if you happen to have a Bible handy, you might want to highlight verse 19, 20, 25, 26, 31, 32, 37, 38, 43, 44, 49, 50, 55, 56, 61, 62, 67, 68, 73, 74, 79, 80, 85, 86. All of those referred to items, gold and silver, that were weighed or measured in shekels. Now, at law in the United States, as we've discussed, the two substances that were to be used as money would be gold and silver in coin form. The top row of coins we have here were gold coins minted by the United States Treasury up until 1933. The coin way to the left was denominated as one dollar. The coin to the right of it weighed two and a half times as much. It weighed two and a half dollars. The coin to the right, again, weighed five times as much, and it weighed 5D, or five dollars. The next coin to the right weighed ten times as much as the coin on the end. This coin, therefore, weighed ten dollars. And the coin way to the end weighed twenty dollars. Now, those of you who are gold coin bust, remember that this coin here was spoken of as a double eagle, and that would actually indicate the weight, a double eagle weight or a $20 weight of gold. And the coin to its left was therefore a single eagle or just an eagle weight or a $10 weight of gold. Now, if you wanted to obtain an object, perhaps today you might want to buy a TV set and you might want to buy it in gold coin. These are fairly valuable items, you see. You might ask the person, how much do you want for that particular television set? Well, he says, I'd like to have 25.8 grains, 90% pure, minted by the United States Treasury. Well, surely you can say it a little bit more conveniently than that. Well, yes, I just simply want a dollar of gold. Just as we use the yard to be equivalent to 36 inches, and we don't always say we want 36 inches of this and 72 inches of that. We speak of a yard or two yards and so forth. Likewise, we would simply say, I want a dollar of gold for this particular object, and that would suffice for saying 25.8 grains, 90% pure. Now, if the relationship is held true throughout all of these coins, and this coin weighs a dollar or 25.8 grains, then a $10 weight must weigh 258 grains. You simply move the decimal point to the right one place. The accuracy on these coins was, when they were minted, three places to the, right, to the right of the decimal. Now, the second row of coins were silver coins minted by the United States Treasury. The coin way to the left weighed a half a dime. 
Now, this was not a nickel, but it was equivalent to five cents. It was made out of silver. The coin to its right weighed twice as much. It weighed a dime. The coin to its right weighed a quarter of a dollar, and the coin to its right weighed a half a dollar, and the coin all the way to the right weighed one dollar. You notice that we didn't say that the coin way at the end was a silver dollar. Why? Because no one has ever seen, tasted, heard, touched, or smelled a dollar. Any more than we could say that that might have weighed an ounce and that therefore that is a silver ounce. No one has ever seen a silver ounce or a silver pound. Likewise, no one has ever seen a silver dollar. Despite the wording to the contrary, that coin weighed a dollar, and therefore that coin was a dollar weight of silver or simply a dollar of silver. Well, if there's no such thing as a dollar, just as there's no such thing tangible as an inch, yard, cubic yard, gallon, etc., then there can be no such thing as a tenth of a dollar, and a tenth of a dollar was a dime. So therefore, this is not a silver dime, it is a dime weight of silver. Now, we have a very nice relationship between these coins. It's sort of like looking at our wife's measuring cups on the shelf in our kitchens at home. But now, if we were to compare the silver coins to the gold coins, we have a little bit of confusion that seems to creep in here. We notice that the $1 weight of silver is considerably larger than the $1 weight of gold. Why was that? Well, most people recognize that silver isn't as valuable in the subjective sense as gold. And back during the Coinage Act, silver was passing at about 16 to 1 against gold. In other words, you needed approximately 16 units of silver to be equal in psychological value to one unit of gold. So our founding fathers did something which may have been a violation of the scriptures. Because the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 25, verse 13 through 15, for example, and there are at least nine other passages that deal with just weights and measures. Deuteronomy 25, 13 through 15 says, Thou shalt not have in thy bag a weight, a large and a small. Thou shalt not have in thy house a measure, a large and a small. But thou shalt have a perfect, see, God doesn't want too much of us, does he? A perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be prolonged in the land which the eternal God giveth thee. Now, most people will think to the constitutional passage, Article 1, Section 8, and Paragraph 5, which says that Congress shall have the power to coin money and regulate the value. Now, the word value in that application is not in the subjective sense. It was in an objective sense. We can refer to Black's Law Dictionary, 5th edition, which will tell us under the word value that value in that application meant the weight and purity of the coin, not in how much you thought it was worth. Now, watch what happens when we have a silver coin, which is 16 times larger than a gold coin, and both of them bear the same denominational monetary weight. Can you imagine, for example, if one of you came into a supermarket and you wanted to obtain a pound of salt, and another one of you came into the same supermarket to obtain a pound of sugar? 
Now, sugar is more valuable than salt. And as you bring the two bags of salt and sugar to the checkout counter, you notice something. The bag of sugar is considerably smaller than the bag of salt. So you ask the attendant, what gives here anyway? And the attendant simply says to what well, don't you know? Sugar is more valuable than salt. Therefore, a pound of sugar is one ounce. And a pound of salt is 16 ounces. Can you grasp the confusion that would emerge in the marketplace if all of our goods and services were predicated upon psychological value and not upon intrinsic characteristics or objective value, weight and purity, etc. Now, within each system we had a just weight and measure. If you had just gold coins, then these were just. If you had simply silver coins in circulation, then these were just. When they both circulated side by side, then what I'm submitting should have happened was that this coin and this coin should have been exactly the same size, and it may very well have taken 16 of these coins to get one of these coins, but you and I will decide in free trade. But a pound of a substance should be the same, just as a dollar weight of the substances should be the same, even though the substances themselves are different. Nevertheless, what we have today in the United States for just weights and measures? Well, we only go up to one dollar today. We don't even get into the paper notes and the larger denominations and then the sky's the limit on those. When we look at these coins, one recognizes we don't have to be a brilliant economist to figure out that there's something wrong with the relationship of these coins. Up until 1981, the one cent coin way to the left was composed of 95% copper. Starting in 1981 and 1982, thereabouts, they started taking the copper out of this coin. In fact, they started making it out of zinc, and they merely copper-coated it. So they kind of look like copper, but they're a little bit lighter. And when you flip them in your finger, the old ones would go bling, and the new ones go plunk, because the new ones are not made out of copper. They're made out of zinc, apparently a cheaper material. All of these coins, however, that I have pictured here were made out of predominantly copper. 95% copper. But why was it, or why is it, that the Susan B. Agony Super Quarter, which is only 50% heavier than the quarter, gets us 400% more down at the local grocery store? Why is it that this coin that most people call a dime, which contains 95% copper, contains less copper than the old penny, and yet it gets us ten times as much down at the grocery store. For that matter, why is the dime considerably smaller than the nickel, and the nickel is made out of copper and nickel? Why is it that the nickel gets you only half as much? Well, doesn't make sense, does it? In fact, my wife and I, when we were leaving Maine on a nationwide tour, stopped at a toll booth in Kittery, and the toll was 155. And the attendant there was probably in his mid-50s, had a few shocks of gray hair. He said, it's 155. So I handed him one of these Susan B. Anthony super slugs. We handed him a Kennedy half, and we handed him five of the new zinc pennies. And we proceeded to wait. 
He said, that's 155. I said, yes, sir. He said, that's 155. Yes, sir. He grabs a hold of this large coin. He says, what is this? A dollar? I said, no, sir, that's the half dollar. The dollar coin is the small one. He had never seen those two coins in juxtaposition to realize that a dollar coin was smaller nowadays than the half dollar. But once he read the superscription on those coins, he believed. You see, there's one born every minute, isn't there? Now, if you were going to go down to the bank with one of these Federal Reserve notes, one of these greenies we carry in our pocket, and you wanted to invest in copper, and you told the girl behind the counter that you'd like to have for your $1 Federal Reserve note, your $1 bill, you'd like to have an Anthony coin. How much copper and nickel would you receive? Three-tenths of an ounce. Well, the next day you go down to the same bank and you tell the girl this time you'd like to have four quarters. That adds up to a dollar. How much copper and nickel do you receive now? Eight-tenths of an ounce. Each one of these weighed two-tenths of an ounce apiece. Two-tenths of an ounce times four is going to give you eight-tenths of an ounce. So the next day you go down to the same bank and this time you want to receive a dollar in nickels. How much copper nickel do we receive this time? 3.6 ounce. And then the next day we go down and we want a dollar in pennies, the one cent coin, 1981 or older. How much do we receive in copper nickel this time? About three quarters of a pound. Funny now, the Bible says, Thou shalt not have in thy bag a weight a large and a small. No, we have four weights just in the coins alone, and we haven't even gone over the $1 denomination. Now, if you're going to invest in copper, which one of these coins would have gotten you the most copper? The Anthony or the one-cent piece, 1981 and earlier? Quite obviously, you would have received more copper, and this would have been probably the better investment if you had taken the advice of some a few years ago who suggested you invest in copper. Uh, I make no such recommendation. I think copper is a terrible investment. It's an extremely heavy commodity for the value that it actually possesses, psychological or otherwise. But we have a publication here entitled A Day at the Fed, Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And the New York Federal Reserve Bank, you know, is the central bank of the 12. Despite the fact we have 12 Federal Reserve Banks, the other 11 are primarily check-clearing facilities and they print books. But the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is the central bank of the 12. This is where the Federal Open Market Committee is located. This is the monetary authority. And they say on page 9, quote, The constant drain of pennies presents a mystery to the coin section. Anybody mystified as to where the coins were going? Exactly why they disappear, they say, or where is anyone's guess? Would anybody want to guess where the copper pennies were going? They told us in this article that they had to put into circulation 50 million new pennies every month to keep up with the drain. I used to have five-gallon buckets of pennies myself. Now, I didn't have that many, however. Have you ever tried to pick up a five-gallon bucket of pennies? Can you imagine someone running through the door and saying, hey, the economy just collapsed today. Grab your loot and run. I don't care how strong you are. 
the handle might come off in your hand, but the bucket's not going anywhere. It's staying right there. And even if you could take the bucket with you, how much purchasing power are you going to have in a five-gallon bucket of pennies? Now, a few rolls of gold coin would be a little different story. You see, one of the essential elements of having something being used as money is that it must be portable. And copper, in order to get a good amount of purchasing power, is not terribly portable. Well, when discussing our monetary system in the United States and the various frauds and misconceptions that surround it, we invariably end up discussing the paper notes, or what some people call paper money. We should like to make it very clear, however, that there's no such thing as paper money, statements to the contrary notwithstanding. If, for example, we were to say that we're using metallic money, wouldn't that presuppose we're using a metal of some sort as money? If we said that we're using plastic money, wouldn't that presuppose that we're using plastic as money? If we said we're using paper money, would that not also presuppose that we're using paper as money? The numbers on the piece of paper do not represent quantities of paper. Paper has not even been declared to be money. In fact, paper itself is not even declared to be a legal tender. Why? It's too heavy. Paper is way too heavy to be used as money. And you know that. Can you imagine trying to obtain a brand new Cadillac this year, maybe for $25,000, and you went down to Scott Paper Company and you told the attendant down there, would you like to have $25,000 worth of toilet tissue? He kind of looked at you funny. He said, you got a problem? No, no, I just want to uh, buy a new Cadillac and I want to buy it in paper. Do you have any idea how much paper you would need and how big a room you would need to hold $25,000 worth of toilet paper? Or paper towels. We go to a publication put on by the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. It's called Your Money and the Federal Reserve System. And on page four, we're going to discover the source of banks, receipts for money, and inflation. They all come at the same time because they're all interrelated. The article's entitled, Commercial Banking Begins. In fact, they tell us that loan contracts originated in ancient Babylon. But modern-day banking probably had its start in England. Goldsmiths, now goldsmiths were the predecessor, weren't they, to bankers today. Goldsmiths stored gold and coins for customers as a sideline to their principal trade and issued receipts. This is what this was, was a receipt for gold. Issued receipts for the amount. Well, what could be wrong with that? John over here deposits a gold coin with Honest Bruno, the banker in Jerusalem, and Honest Bruno gives John a receipt for the gold coin that's been deposited. What could be wrong with that? Watch. In time, it says here, depositors of gold found they could settle debts by transferring gold receipts instead of gold itself. Why is that? Well, simply because the people were trusting the receipts rather than trusting in the gold coin. Now, of course, the Bible tells us not to trust in gold, but now we're going one step further. We're trusting in a receipt for a gold coin. Could there be anything wrong with that? Well, most people think not. Well, let's see. The article continues. 
Goldsmiths, that's me, Honest Bruno, soon discovered that part of the money left with them was never withdrawn. Hmm. Now, the Bible tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. What would you do, sinner, if you had a room full of gold coins that didn't belong to you and nobody bothered to come after them? Well, it says here, they could loan it, what? The gold coin, to other persons who would repay later with interest. Watch what happens here. I'm running a bank. You deposit a gold coin with me, the honest banker, and I give you a receipt, a gold certificate or a gold note, if you will. You trust in the note, and you find that the other people in society believe in the notes because they can get the gold. So you pass the gold receipt as a proxy token or a surrogate or a substitute for the gold coin itself. How many purchasing units do we have in the marketplace? One. The gold receipt. Remember, the gold coin is on deposit with me, Honest Bruno. Now, another gentleman comes in. He says, I'd like to borrow a gold coin. No problem. I loan him one of those gold coins that was sitting over in the corner collecting dust. A gold coin that was on deposit to back up one of the receipts that is still in the marketplace being spent. How many purchasing units do we now have in the marketplace? Two. The receipt for gold and the gold coin. What happens to the price of commodities such as peanut butter, wood stoves, furniture, and automobiles when you double the number of purchasing units in circulation? They increase. In fact, theoretically, they would double. What's that called today? Inflation. Where did it come from? The honest banker. How? issuing receipts against a substance that people began to trust. Now watch how this scenario picks up a little bit of momentum. Furthermore, the borrowers found it convenient to accept receipts for the amount of their loans rather than the actual gold. Hmm. Not only is the depositor trusting in the receipt for gold, but now we're going to convince the borrower that he too should be using a receipt for gold rather than that heavy, barbaric metal. So, one person deposits the gold coin with me, and I loan him a receipt, or I give him a receipt, which he uses as the money substitute. Another individual comes in from the other side and says, I'd like to borrow the gold. I said, oh, you don't want to borrow that heavy metal? Why don't you borrow one of these lightweight and handy receipts? Well, he too trusts in the receipt. He takes it. We now have two receipts being spent in the marketplace at the same time against the same gold coin. And who kept the gold coin? Honest Bruno. Have you ever noticed that you've never seen a shabby bank? The most beautiful buildings in your community are banks. And if you happen to live where there's a Federal Reserve Bank, then there is indeed a temple to behold. Now, the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 19.15 that, in essence, by the mouth of two or more shall every fact be confirmed. In fact, this is a scriptural uh, principle which is carried throughout the entire Bible. You've got to have at least two witnesses. Well, can we get another witness for this? Sure. The Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago puts out a publication entitled Modern Day, or rather, uh, Modern Money Mechanics. 
Modern Money Mechanics tells us on page three that, quote, banks can build up deposits by increasing loans. Did you know that? They can build up deposits by increasing loans? I'm a rather simple fellow. I'm being from Maine. I know what a deposit looks like. I've seen them out behind the barn, haven't you? Now, when your next-door neighbor comes to you and says, I'd like to borrow some of that manure you've got there, your deposit, does the deposit go down or does it increase? It's got to go down. But that's not what it says here in this book put out by the Monetary Authority of the United States. They insist that banks can build up deposits by increasing loans. They couldn't possibly loan what the deposit was because the deposit would have to go down. So they must be loaning something else. This unique attribute of the banking business was discovered several centuries ago. Hmm, I wonder who discovered it. At one time, it says, bankers were merely middlemen. They made a profit by accepting gold and coin brought to them for safekeeping and lending them to borrowers. But they soon found that the receipts they issued were being used as a means of payment. These receipts were acceptable as money since whoever held them, they say, could go to the banker and exchange them for metallic money. Then bankers discovered that they could make loans merely by giving borrowers their promises to pay. Brackets, banknotes. Oh, that's great. What a sweet swindle. Can you imagine Hertz or Avis or National Rent-A-Car Company trying to get away with that? We go down to the Avis desk at the airport and we tell the girl down there we'd like to rent a new car. No problem, she says. She works out the rental agreement and then she hands you the keys. You go out into the parking lot and you're looking around for the car that she has described. And you see all of the signs that say reserve for Avis, reserve for Avis, reserve for Avis. But there aren't any cars out there. So you go back in and say, excuse me. I said, we must have a problem. I said, I can't find the car. Oh, she says, there isn't one. What do you mean there isn't one? You promised to lend me a car, and I've got to catch a flight out of Houston here, and I've got to get the car. You promised to lend me the car. That's right. She says, that's what we loaned you. You loaned me what? We loaned you the promise. You see, she says, we found it was a lot cheaper this way. I'll be darned. I can see what you mean. Bankers discovered that they could make loans merely by giving borrowers their promises to pay. They never made the loan. They merely execute a note or a check or a demand deposit and pretend to make the loan without loaning anything. In this way, it says, banks began to create money. Well, if banks can create anything, the best they could create would be illusions. Joyce Kilmer told us in the poem Trees that only God could create a tree. And I suspect that only God could create substances. But perhaps the banks can create illusions. But maybe even we get in on the take because perhaps we create the money right here in our own mind. If you receive a check or a demand deposit or a credit from your local bank, you create the money right here if you believe that that's money. So all it is is just a number on a piece of paper. 
representing a quantity of absolutely nothing on deposit at that bank. 